And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Sean Rittenauer, Professor of Economics, Grove City College. Uh, Professor Rittenauer, it's great to have you on today. Well, thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure, and I'm, I'm very happy to be here. You know, it's kind of funny. I was thinking about this before we um, got on the phone line together, and I realized that as I was growing up, uh, going to high school, eventually junior college, then college, I had like zero interest in economics. And then you graduate, and you get married, you buy a home, and all these things, and more and more you realize, well, economics is really important. And if you don't have your, for example, personal economics in place, it can be a very uncomfortable thing. But then economics at a macro level, uh, states and all of that, and taxation, all, it can really be uh, a monster to deal with. So I'm so glad that you've had the time to share with us today. And um, what I'm wondering is, to get us started, today we're talking about economics. I have an interest in the Ten Commandments and how they form some kind of a foundation for sound economic practice. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, perhaps the Eighth Commandment or the Tenth Commandment or both, if you could um, share your thoughts on that with us. Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I think that when we talk about ec- economic policy, uh, we're talking about actions, laws, mandates that are passed by the various governing bodies that control various aspects of economic activity. So you could think of, say, uh, price ceilings or price floors that are put on certain goods in certain markets or tax policy for the purpose of redistributing income or the various types of business regulation or the government manipulation of the monetary system. All those are different types of forms of economic policy, and what is one thing that's common to all of those forms is it impinges on how people use their their property. And because it impinges on how people use their property, and because their efforts that say you you can do this, but you can't do that, not only do those issues of policy involve economic questions, but they necessarily involve ethical questions. In other words, is it, is it right, for instance, to, should we, uh, say, increase the minimum wage? Should we decrease taxes? Uh, should we uh, have a central bank that controls the money supply? And if so, should it be increasing the money supply? We talk about should and shouldn't. We're moving beyond merely what will happen if we do these things, that would be sort of uh, pure economic science, and we're, we're moving into the questions of ethics. And so I think having a proper, you know, have a, a fully understood Christian ethic of property helps us to deal with these questions. And I think you're, you're very right that the, you know, the commandment against stealing, thou shalt not steal, and uh, the commandment against coveting, along with the commandment against uh, murder, all of those things uh, do influence the way uh, we should view economic policy. And so, I mean, from my perspective, I think it's it's very clear that the scriptures uh, mandate or give us, shall we say, a divine right to property. That's that's the way Charles Hodge put it in his systematic theology, a divine right to property. And what he meant by that was clearly you've got the direct precepts against theft. Right? You've got uh, thou shalt not steal. Um, additionally, you have in the Old Testament especially a number of 
commandments or passages that speak against things such as moving property barriers. Um, there are um, other passages that speak about um, you know how fraud is prohibited. There are uh, passages that speak about the fact that if someone is guilty of of theft and they're they're caught, uh, the scripture demands restitution. And so all of these things are are regulations, uh, part of the moral law that God has laid down. And what's interesting is nobody disputes, no Christian at least disputes that 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 God has this right. You know that that ultimately God is the owner of everything. He made all there was. Uh, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. And so he is the owner, ultimately, of of everything, because he made it. And so as owner, he can decide uh, how is it that people that serve, ultimately, as his stewards, how is it that we get control of various aspects of property? And he tells us, well, it's not lawful to try to get it through stealing or through fraud or through cheating, or those kinds of things. And uh, on the one hand, okay, that, that instructs us negatively. Okay, we can't do these things. But on the other hand, it positively tells us that, well, then, if we do possess property, uh, if we have come under it lawfully, we've either, uh, you know, homesteaded property, or we have used our own labor to engage in productive labor and got paid, uh, that's a form of exchange, then that, that salary is ours. And we, and we, get, to, we get to oversee it you know, as, as we think is wise. And that understanding of the Christian ethic of property gives us much instruction regarding economic policy. For instance, if a person is, in fact, secure in their own property, that implies that they can do with it what they want as long as they don't use that property to harm somebody else. Uh, so that would imply that an economic policy that is in line with that Christian ethic would be a policy that would clearly say, okay, uh, private citizens can't steal from other private citizens, but neither can the ruler. Right? The, the, the civil magistrate is not allowed to steal just because he's been elected or just because he was born into the kingship. And so... Um, you know, just as uh, I can't steal from you, the king shouldn't be able to steal from you, even if it's by majority vote, right? And so, having said all that, if you think about specific policies, you see no warrant in Scripture for the government, for instance, imposing any type of price ceiling or price floor. You know, businesses would be free to use their property as they see fit to produce goods in a particular way without being hampered by government regulations. Um, you know, if, if it turns out a particular product is of a particular quality and people don't like that particular quality, well, then they'll, they'll have to do something else. Uh, they can't continue to foist uh, inferior products on people uh, forever. And if the government would step in and say, well, no, you can't produce a product uh, like this or like that, well, that's a violation of, of the Christian ethic of property. And so I'm kind of taking a long time to answer this question, but I would say in some sense the short answer is it's my conviction that a, an economic system that is reflective of the Christian ethic of property would be a system that would be basically a free market. 
people are secure in their property. They can buy and sell as they see fit as long as they don't harm others by infringing on their ability to do likewise. Yeah, that seems like it would uh, provide um, not just honor to God for or <laughs> obeying his commandment, but a maximum freedom for the individual. And assuming they're responsible, um, that should be a, a great blessing to society. Uh, exactly. I mean, um, when you think about what we get economically out of private property, if people are free to use the property as they see fit, they're free to hold on to it, they're free to use it in exchange, they're free to use it to produce, what that means is um, that opens a door to a number of, shall we say, social benefits, one being uh, the market division of labor. So if we have private property, which includes the right to trade the property with others, that then allows each person to to specialize in, in producing or doing a, a particular calling, you know, participating in a particular calling. They, they, uh, a producer could produce a particular type of good or somebody who has this particular interest in a particular thing, such as somebody may be gifted in being an, an exceptionally good manager of, of, of a business. Or some people could be, somebody's a really great painter. Somebody could be a really good uh, professor of English or what have you. A free market because people are able to engage in exchange, that opens a door for people to specialize in those things. Because in a free market, you can trade for other things that, that you would need. For instance, you know, if, imagine a world without any exchange. That would be a world in which if you want food, clothing, or shelter, you're going to have to make it yourself. And not everybody's equally gifted in that way. And so you could imagine that the society would be a lot, immediately a lot more primitive, there would be uh, there would be a lot fewer people because because there would be a lot of people that that wouldn't be able to survive they would starve it would just be a, a lower standard of living all the way around but when we have private property that allows for people to engage in exchange that opens the door for people to specialize in doing something they're really good at and then taking the surplus of whatever they produce and then trade that surplus for other things that other people are specializing in producing. And because everybody is specializing in a work at which they are particularly suited, society as a whole becomes more productive. And so not only do, does each individual sort of benefit privately, but society as a whole is able to have access to, to more and better goods that they can use to satisfy more of their ends for themselves and, and, their, and their families. And so you get the market division of labor from private property. On top of that, you have an incentive for people to save and invest in, in capital formation. Um, you know, if, if we were unsure, if we were fearful that, um, you know, if it, any savings that we've accumulated over the past year at any moment could be in danger of being taken away by a thief, a common criminal, or taken away by uh, you know, by the government through excessive taxation or confiscation, well, then we have very little incentive to, to save and invest. We have much more incentive to sort of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. We're going to be <laughs> stolen from anyway. So the incentive to save and invest in capital formation is greatly enhanced in a world of private property. And uh, a positive um, result of that, of course, is with, with more and better capital goods at people's disposal, they can be even more productive. So on top of the benefits you get with the division of labor, you get capital accumulation that, that further increases our productivity, which 
further increases the the quantity and quality of goods that we have, again, to satisfy the needs that we have for ourselves and our family. And then finally, on top of all of that, um, we have a free market through voluntary exchange yields what we call uh, market prices, so that the, the prices of all goods that are bought and sold are reflective of people's own subjective preferences. Uh, they're reflective of the actual desires that people have, and that's important because it's those prices that entrepreneurs use to direct economic production. Right? They, it, it's those prices that entrepreneurs use that say, well, what's the cost of my production? If I want to produce, say, laptop computers, how do I know that's a wise thing to do? What should I do that or should I not? Well, an entrepreneur would say, what is the cost of production? How much can I sell the laptop for? How much can I sell the tablet for? How much could I sell the smartphone for? And they would make these comparisons, and then on the basis of those profit and loss calculations, they will make a choice. And, and, and of course, if their estimations are correct, they'll earn a profit. If they're wrong, they'll earn a loss. Now, those calculations, if they're correct, they will help them to earn a profit. But what's important is that the very prices in a free market, the very prices that entrepreneurs use to calculate profit and loss, those very prices are manifestations of people's preferences. So when an entrepreneur reaps a profit, he's reaping a profit for precisely producing the goods that people want the most in the most efficient way possible. And that's only possible if the prices that they use to guide them are prices that are reflections of their own preferences. Well, when do those prices occur? Those prices occur in a society where people are trading only when they want to trade. In other words, they're trading in a world of voluntary exchange, which is the kind of exchange system we get if we have private property. So private property yields all of these benefits in both expanding the division of labor, uh, giving an incentive and allowing uh, capital formation and accumulation and capital usage, as well as uh, wise entrepreneurship. And those three things, oh, and, and in addition to that, of course, technological development, those things working together is what allows us to enjoy more economic prosperity. And, of course, to the extent that, say, the government infringes, oh, anybody, it could be a, a you know, it could be a, a, a significant you know, large criminal, very powerful private criminal, or uh, if the government impinges through various regulations, it hampers that whole system, and to the extent that it hampers uh, th that system of the market division of labor, capital accumulation, and entrepreneurship, then all of us will be relatively uh, impoverished compared to what we could get in a free market. Yeah, that's very helpful. This, I think, uh, segues nicely into the next question and that is, not everybody sees it this way. I wish they did. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, we'd have a lot more freedom and certainly a lot more peace and tranquility. But uh, in the history of America, we have seen various schools of thought emerge that attempt to inform our thinking on economics. Um, some want a very free system and assume that we're going to be responsible. But um, some of these folks have come up with, um, or are advocating, I should say, a socialist approach, uh, even people running for office that want to govern us. And I, I'm wondering, uh, by contrast, you've just described the, the biblical, basically, economic system. Can you uh, 
describe what the socialist system would look like. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, so a socialist economic system, what makes the system socialist uh, from an economics perspective? Uh, what would make an economy socialist is when the ownership of the means of production, the ownership of land, labor, capital goods, is socialized in the hands of, well, is socialized, but of course, to function, it has to be socialized in the hands of somebody, and what that means is it's going to be socialized in the hands of the state. So effectively, the government owns and directs the land, labor, and capital goods of, of an economic society. Um, now, very rarely ever have we had a purely socialist society ever in the history of, of the world. And uh, because whenever uh, we've become close to that, the whole thing completely breaks down. It utterly breaks down. In, in fact, in some sense, the, the, the phrase socialist economy is an oxymoron because um, you cannot have an economy when the government owns all of the means of production, primarily because there's no actual exchange. Uh, if, if the government owns all capital goods, for instance, they can direct capital goods to go hither and yon, but there's no actual exchange of capital goods of any meaning. And so there's no actual prices for those capital goods. And certainly whatever prices that, you know, they could sort of arbitrarily affix on a piece of machinery, for instance, that price has no bearing to its actual economic contribution to uh, to society. And so... What you end up doing is you have, uh, say, the, the, the economic planning czar, the central planning board, having to make economic decisions, but they have no true guide, and so they end up, as uh, Ludwig von Mises put it, uh, groping about in the dark. They, end up, they, they, they have to do something, and they, they take their best stab at it, but um, whenever there's been pure socialism, the whole thing, the whole economy has come uh, to a screeching halt very quickly. I mean, um, you know, the, the early Soviets tried to do that right after the revolution. For about the first, they had pretty, they, they, they progressed pretty close to pure socialism through the first four or five years. And, you know, millions of, millions of Soviets uh, started starving to death. And uh, Lenin even recognized that you, we, we can't have this. There's no way to, to run a, a socialist railroad. And so he started making compromises with the market. He allowed for uh, inroads of private property in various areas, especially agriculture. And that is really what allowed the Soviet Union to limp along for as long as it did. And, and what's, you know, what's amazing, of course, is that we get people in the West, Americans especially, I think, get... Uh, in some sense, uh, led astray by their their prosperity. Um, I think it was uh, F. A. Hayek, who was a, a an Austrian economist, said that you know the strength and the weakness of a free market economy. It's both a strength and weakness that you don't have. No individual person has to fully understand how it works to benefit from it. And on the one hand, of course, that's great because not everybody has to be an economist. People can do a whole host of different things and participate in the market division of labor, and they, they can benefit from it. On the other hand, what that means is that because people don't fully understand how it works, they get fooled and think, oh, we're very prosperous. We, we can afford to make this or that intervention. We can afford, for instance, to embrace socialized medicine and socialized health care. We can afford to embrace socialized education through government and public schools, et cetera, et cetera. And so we make those steps, and it turns out that, that when we make those steps, things become less efficient. They break down because 
it impedes the, the market price system. The, the prices that appear, for instance, in healthcare, one of the, the, the number one, one of the main reasons that healthcare is so expensive in this country is that there is a disconnect between people's preferences for the service and the amount that they actually have to pay for that service. And so the prices that, that are there aren't prices that are reflect, actually reflective of the desires of the people that actually are using the service. And so whenever the government steps in and tries to socialize something, it hampers either accidentally or often on purpose the market price system. And so entrepreneurs or economic decision makers are left without a vital source of uh, information and a vital guide directing them to producing only those products that people want the most. And so you, you tend to get massive waste. You get shortages, egregious shortages of some goods. You get huge surpluses of other goods. You get um, you know goods that can tend to be uh, certain goods that, that you know too many goods in certain parts of the economy, not enough goods in other regions, and uh, everything becomes you know just less productive, less efficient, more wasteful. You know it, it hampers stewardship, and then of course society pays the price for it. Yeah. One of the emails I got recently, uh, I think it was last week, was uh, from one of our state assemblymen, and he was pushing, and this ties into our discussion here, he was pushing for a tuition-free a State University of New York for community colleges. And, you know, on the surface, that sounds so tempting. You know, you'd say, how am I going to pay for this? Oh, it's free. By all means, pass that. But people don't realize, they don't take the time to think, where does the money come from? Uh, it comes from other people. And what it is is simply a redistribution of wealth. And um, you know what? If we uh, really believe what God says about the Ten Commandments, that's a violation of the law of God. Oh, oh exactly. I mean, it, 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 it completely is, right? I mean, you, you can look, look hard, look hard at Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5. You don't see any asterisk, right? You don't say, <laughs> thou shalt not steal except by majority vote. Yeah. Or thou shalt not steal except if you are a bureaucrat or an elected official. And so, I mean, it, it, that type of activity seems to me, when you say, I mean, you're exactly right. If you're going to have a if you're going to have a, a, a transfer program like that, you're just going to provide you know free you know, free access to, to college. The colleges are going to get their money, and it's going to come from the state treasury. Right now, the state is an even in some sense is constrained even more than say the national government because the state doesn't have its own uh, money printing machine called the Federal Reserve. Right, mm. and so their money has to come from uh, you know borrowing uh, private savings. Or they have to tax, right? And both of those, both of those uh, ways to fund uh, that tuition has negative consequences. If it's taxed, of course, you have the private citizen has less income that they can use as they see fit. And you know, on the economic side, you get uh, less saving and investment. You get capital consumption, and so people will be less productive in the state of New York. On top of that, though, you have you have the moral problem, right? People are kept from enjoying the fruits of their labor. 
people are kept from uh, you know benefiting from their own hard work and and, and are forced essentially at the point of a gun. I mean, that's what happens if you don't pay taxes. You get, there are significant penalties. There are people in jail because they don't pay taxes. And so at the point of a gun, you end up having to pay for somebody else's education. And so I think it's, I think it's a, a wrong-headed a policy all the way around. Yes. Well, I, um, I'd love to get together again. Today we're talking with Dr. Sean Rittnar, professor of economics, Grove City College. And uh, in the last 30 seconds, Dr. Rittnar, suppose we have a homeschooling family that wants to teach economics to their kids. I know you've written a book, and I have a hunch that that would make a, just a fine thing to get for this homeschooling family. Can you tell them how to get one? Uh, yes, thank you so much. Um, yeah, the book's called Foundations of Economics, A Christian View. Uh, the best place to, to search for it would be on Amazon.com, uh, Foundations of Economics uh, by Sean Rittenauer. Uh, it's a book that was written as a sort of an introductory college text, but I found that there's a lot of uh, Christian uh, high schools and uh, homeschool families that find it uh, well within their ability to benefit from. So it's definitely not, I think, it's written at a very introductory level, and I try to make it very engaging. So, um, you know, the, the intelligent high school student and college student could benefit from it, and the average layman could too. So I would say that would be a, an excellent choice for them to, to learn basic introductory economics. Um, other, you know, there are other, another book that we've gotten for our daughters is the, um, you know, Whatever Happened to Penny Candy? I think that's a pretty good book. It's not as principle-oriented as mine, but there's a lot of really good stuff in that book. Oh, that's beautiful. Sean Rittenar, thank you so much for joining us today. And dear listener, a copy of this broadcast is up on our website. Check it out. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. And Dr. Rittenar, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me again. It is, it is always a pleasure. God bless you all, and please join us next week. Amazes me, your love.